All right. Well, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be looking uh, at the entire chapter. Um, This is a very, very familiar story to most of us, but hopefully this morning as we uh, study this chapter that maybe we can look at it with some fresh eyes and uh, with some fresh ears and uh, come to see how it uh, bears on our hearts uh, today. Well, many of you have heard the phrase before, and <clears throat> I've heard Pastor Richard say this phrase uh, a lot, really in the last year or uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And the phrase is that we are strangers in a strange land. We are strangers in a strange land. And I think the, <clears throat> the older that I've gotten and the, the more experience that uh, I have uh, come to attain, I think I don't necessarily know that this statement is, you know, more true today than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago or, or whatever, but I think maybe I've just become a little bit more observant of the world around me. But I find that this statement really rings true, that we as Christians are strangers in a strange land. You know, Scripture, like the passages, like the passage we're going to look at this morning, and I'm sure each one of our personal experience, uh, experiences teach us that this present kingdom of darkness is doggedly persistent in trying to wear out the saints of God. Doggedly persistent in its attempts to wear out the saints of God. But it's texts like our story this morning that remind us, no matter how persistent the world is around us, that our God is so much more relentlessly faithful to those who love him and to those who obey his word. He is relentlessly faithful in his commitment to deliver his children from the kingdom of darkness. So this morning we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. Here we find the story of three Jewish men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're probably better known to you by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book is written by the prophet Daniel. There's his name. He was the writer. Uh, And he tells the story of himself and his three friends while they are in exile in the land of Babylon. These three, or these four men, are taken into the king's court and they serve him there for many years. Now, Daniel, in particular, uh, we we have more of a fleshed out story in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel about his life. And he, in particular, uh, served very faithfully under several different foreign god or foreign kings in this book beginning with king nebuchadnezzar the babylonian king who conquered jerusalem and and brought them out of the land and and put them in captivity in the land of babylon all the way to king cyrus who was the king of the medes and the persians uh some 70 or so years that daniel serves faithfully uh, as a follower of the one true and living god in the courts of these pagan kings. Now, the book of Daniel is, as a whole is divided into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 6, uh, and it consists of just historical narrative of the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, you can read through those stories, and I, I would encourage you uh, this afternoon, maybe, uh, to read the first uh, six chapters of Daniel. It doesn't take very long, uh, and it's not like there's anything good on TV tonight. Uh, so uh, a few of you caught that joke. <laughs> so uh, it would be a good use of your afternoon to sit down and to read the story of Daniel and 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's the first half of the book, is this kind of chronological, historical narrative of these four Jewish men living in exile in Babylon. The second half of the book is a little more interesting, uh, perhaps to some of you. Perhaps to some of you it's a little more frustrating. I think I find myself in that latter category, that it's a little bit more frustrating. It's a series of prophetic and even apocalyptic visions given to the prophet Daniel by God. And there are some wild and out there visions in the last half of, of this book, but it serves as a very important background to the New Testament. So in order to understand the book of Revelation and, and what the apostle John uh, is teaching us and all of the visions and the different things that, that uh, John is talking about in the book of Revelation, they're not just some fanatical things that he's pulling out of the air, or pulling out of nowhere. Most of the visions in the book of Revelation are direct correlations with these visions that come from Daniel in chapters 7 through 12. So really, in order to understand uh, the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. Go figure, right? Uh, And so that's the second half of the book. Well, this morning, I'm not going to tackle any of those prophetic visions this morning, uh, but we're going to look at this story in chapter 3, Um, particularly occurring during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar and these three faithful Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I hope this very familiar story, maybe uh, we can hear it anew this morning, hear it afresh this morning, and allow its truths to sink down deep into our hearts. So uh, with that in mind, let's, hopefully you're in Daniel 3 now, uh, so let's stand together as I read uh, this narrative to us. This is God's holy inspired and inerrant word coming to us this morning, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together uh, to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of all of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and to worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, maybe it's just me this morning, but I think the author wants us to know that this was an image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, right? We've heard that phrase a couple of times. We'll hear it a few more. Uh, Verse 6. And whoever does not fall down in worship into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, uh, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not have, or that you do not serve gods or worship uh, the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and his expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he offered some of the mighty, or and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these three men, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. 
Any people, nation, or language that speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word for this morning. You may be seated. So if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see in your bulletin that I have not included any sermon notes. That is not because this is a pointless sermon. (laughs) Um, Some of you guys got that, yeah. Think about it. This is not because this is a pointless sermon, but it's because of what kind of text it is. Uh, This is a story, as you guys have seen, and and there are ways that you can draw points, and we're certainly going to look at different principles and different things that we see here, but what I want to do this morning is just to follow the flow of the story. We are going to have three different kind of hooks that we're going to, we're going to grab onto, we're going to latch onto in this story and, and see how they um, are applicable to us today. Uh, but, you know, I, I just want this morning to follow the flow of this familiar story and to, and to pause at a, a few certain points and to look at what we're seeing here. So there are basically three different things that I want to, I want to see. Uh, so I guess you could say this is a three-point sermon. Uh, so the first thing I want to see is that there's a temptation, right? There's a temptation to worship the idols of the world. The second thing that I want us to see is that there are two different responses, and we're going to fo- focus all of our time on the second response, but there are two different responses to that temptation. But the proper response is to remain faithful to the one true and living God. And then lastly, we're going to look at the result. We're going to look at the result of how the decision uh, to obey God rather than to obey the king worked out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's what we're going to do this morning, just kind of those three hooks in the narrative, and we're going to kind of plant our time in each one of those sections and see uh, what relevance they have for us this morning. So the first thing I want us to see is the temptation, the temptation to worship the idols of this world. Now this narrative, this story begins pretty abruptly. Um, and, and it begins with King Nebuchadnezzar setting up this golden image on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so it's very specific about what it is, and he even gives some specifics about the statue that is made entirely of gold, that it's 60 cubits or 90 feet high, and, and 6 cubits or 9 feet wide. But he's very specific also about where this statue is set up. It's in the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. We know from Daniel chapter 1 that this is in the land of Shinar. Well, some of you guys who remember way back when we were studying the book of Genesis, that Genesis chapter 11, the land of Shinar and the plain of Dura is the general area where the Tower of Babel was constructed. Tower of Babel was constructed. And most biblical scholars agree that, that this is the same general region. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is setting up his image in about the same region that the Tower of Babel was being constructed. And there's some, also, there's some pretty neat similarities between those stories. So <clears throat> why was the Tower of Babel set up? Well, if you remember the story from Genesis 11, you've got a group of people who wanted, one, to make a name for themselves, to build this impressive statue, uh, this impressive uh, statue, this building, uh, in order... Uh, to kind of make a sign and a symbol of their everlasting glory on the earth. And secondly, they were looking for a place to unite them, right? From 
from all different parts, all different regions that are they gathered in this one area to build this place, to unite themselves and to set up this symbol of their everlasting glory. King Nebuchadnezzar is now doing the exact same thing with this golden image. Same place, same thing, right? If you remember what happens uh, in the Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, God confuses their language and scatters them amongst all the different places, all the different regions of the world. He, he creates all these languages so that they can't communicate with each other, and he spreads them out all over the face of the world. Perhaps King Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> in his arrogance uh, and in his perceived uh, sovereignty, is now setting up this statue, this image, in the exact same place, and he's undoing what God had done in Genesis 11. So he thinks. He's gathering all these people from all these different areas, from all of these different languages, and he's bringing them together to bow down and to worship this golden image that he has set up. So what about why it was built? The details of why it was built, that it was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and made entirely of gold. Well, there's significance there too. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 2, you'll know that, uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar has this vision. It's a frightening vision, uh, and he calls on all of his magicians and wise men to come and interpret this dream, to tell him what the dream is and to interpret it for them. And he says, if you tell me wrong, then I'm going to kill you. Well, nobody knows what the dream is because they're a farce, right? And so Daniel uh, <clears throat> prays to the Lord, and, and God reveals to Daniel what King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And if you remember in chapter 2, what it is, is that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of this great statue. And the head of the statue was made of gold. And the rest of the statue was made of all of these different materials. And, and Daniel said this statue is representative of these earthly kingdoms. And the head of gold is your kingdom, King Nebuchadnezzar. But what winds up happening ultimately to that statue? Well, a great stone that is not carved by human hands comes and grinds that statue to dust. And Daniel looks at that king and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you perceive that you have great power and sovereignty. You perceive that you have built this great kingdom. But you are here because the God of the universe, who was not created by human hands, has put you here. And you are not in control of all things. He is in control of all things. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, not your kingdom. That was the interpretation of the dream. Well, here, directly after that interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar sets out, builds this enormous statue made of entirely of gold. Can you see how Nebuchadnezzar's responding? He's saying, God thinks he has sovereignty over me. Well, let me show him what I think of that. And so he builds this great statue made entirely of gold, and it's symbolic of this, the greatness of this kingdom which he has built. And it's also meant to be a unifying factor. He's gathering all the leaders, all the satraps and the prefects and the governors and, and all of the rulers of all of the different kingdoms that he has conquered, uh, including the Hebrew kingdom. And he's bringing them to this plane, to the dedication service of this idol, and he's saying, when you hear 
all these different instruments that come and all these different styles of music that come from your backgrounds and that come from your heritage, you are to fall down and you are to worship this new God that I have made. You're to bow the knee to me, your new God, your new sovereign, your new king. So he's, he's trying to create a way for all of these different tribes and all of these different people to be unified uh, under his rule and under his kingdom. This reminds me of a trip that I took while I was in college. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to go to Russia for several weeks on a mission trip uh, when I was a sophomore or junior in college. And uh, I spent some time in several different cities there in Russia. And one of the most memorable times that I had actually is when I went to Moscow and I was able to spend a couple of days in Red Square touring Red Square and, and seeing all the sites and that kind of stuff. And one of, the, one of the things that I visited just left an imprint on me, and I still remember it very vividly to this day. <clears throat> I visited Lenin's Mausoleum. You guys know about this? Have you seen this? In Red Square, right, the center of Soviet power, there stands this mausoleum, and you can go into this building, and it is a grave. It is a tomb. And there in that tomb, you can walk in and you can see the body of Lenin, the great leader of the Soviet Union. It's kind of weird. It's like a modern mummy. Who in their right mind would want their body preserved for however long it is that he has been dead so that people from all over the world could come and look at your dead body just laying there? Who in their right mind? Why would they do that? I mean, it is a spectacle to behold. It's guarded 24-7. Have you guys ever been to Arlington and see the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? It's a very similar thing as, as Arlington and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It is constantly guarded uh, by, by the Russian army. Well, what do they do in there? It is a symbol of the immortal glory and power of the former Soviet Union. It's kind of strange, and it's kind of sad, right? Notice I said former Soviet Union, right? Lenin died, and you can go see his body today. You can, you can actually go see it, right? It, it's a symbol of, of his former glory. So you can imagine the tremendous pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are under. You can imagine their pressure. They, they know that if they don't bow down and worship... If they stand resolutely and faithfully, then they will surely die. They're going to die. They're going to be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Not just a furnace, not just a fiery furnace, but a burning, fiery furnace, right? Sure, death. And it's as if the king and the culture are telling them, conform or die. That's the temptation here. Well, perhaps Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could just bow down just a little bit, right? They, they can give in just a little bit. Maybe they can bow the knee and go through the, the ritual on the outside, but on the inside, they're going to rebel, right? They've got all their fingers and their toes crossed, and on the inside, they're sticking their tongue out to this great idol that they're bowing down to. At least they'd live to fight another day, right? Now, most of us here this morning, we are not tempted to bow down and worship a 90-foot-tall golden image, I don't know of any of us here that are tempted to do that, but every single one of us knows the temptation to bow our hearts to something. We know that temptation. 
John Calvin, a famous theologian and pastor, once said that our hearts are like idol-making factories. It's a very vivid illustration. We are idol-making factories. Each one of us faces the temptation every single day to put our allegiance and our affection on something other than Christ. Every Every single one of us know that temptation. And Satan will even use good things in your life and in my life and make those things into idols in our hearts. Things like family, children, leisure time, right? Even, even hobbies or food. All of these things can easily be turned into an idol of the heart. And the dangerous thing about these idols, the idols that we face today, is that they are really, really easy to justify in our own minds and in our own hearts, Right? How many of you have ever thought of someone that mom or that dad just loves their kids way too much? Nobody's ever thought that, right? Or, or that husband, man, he just loves his wife so much that it is almost, it, it is sinful. None of us have ever thought that or accused anybody of that. But these things can and do. Satan will use these things and turn them into idols and we will put our worship We will put our affection more than Christ on these other things, even these good things, and exalt them to the point of an idol, of a God, in our heart if we are not careful. So the call this morning is to guard your heart. The call this morning is to guard your heart, to keep your heart for your Savior alone, for him and for him alone. So that brings us to the next section. We've seen the temptation uh, and now let's look at the response. So King Nebuchadnezzar uh, has, has commanded all these peoples and nations and languages to bow down and worship his image. And what does everybody do? They hit the floor. They bow down and they worship the image, right? Except for three. Now, we don't know where Daniel is. Perhaps he's in a different region. I'm sure that if Daniel was there, he would be right alongside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Matter of fact, in chapter 6, there's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And that story and this story have some amazing parallels, right? Some amazing parallels. So I know that if Daniel were here in the plains of Dura, he would be standing with his three friends, but he, he isn't present uh, for whatever reason. And, and so we have these three men who are standing in opposition to the king. Well, in verse 8, we see this group, this slimy little group, the Chaldeans, right? And they come before the king And the text says that they maliciously accuse the Jews. Okay, these are slimy little dudes. They go to the king and they tell the king exactly what he wants to hear. They say, oh king, live forever. By the way, isn't that exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do when he set up the idol? He was building a symbol to his everlasting glory and power. And and, and they have done exactly what he wants them to do. That he have bowed down to him, and they say, O king, live forever. They go on, and they say to Shadrach, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have ignored the king, and they have ignored the call to serve his gods and to worship the golden image that he had set up. Twice in this story, we see Nebuchadnezzar thrown into a tizzy fit, right? Just an outright tizzy fit. And this is the first time. Uh, they, King Nebuchadnezzar hears this news, and he pitches a major fit. 
He confronts the three faithful men, and he, in his mercy and in his kindness, gives them one last chance. Notice the height of the king's arrogance in verse 15. Look down at verse 15. Second half of it. He says, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? You see his arrogance there? Well, in verses 16 through 18, we see the proper response. Most of the people bow down and worship, but in verses 16 through 18, uh, we see this amazing response uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar's command by these three faithful Jewish men. By the way, it's not insignificant that these verses fall right in the middle of the story, right dead center in the middle of the story. Daniel did that on purpose because he's trying to draw attention to what it is that these men say. And it's as if he's saying, this is the main point of the story. This is what I want you to see and understand. Okay, so we're going to park here for a second, and we're going to look at this response of these men. There's two parts to it, and I want to take each part up, okay? So in the first part, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confident in God's ability to save them from this wicked king. Right? You see that there in verse 16. He says, or they say to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. This isn't a matter that's up for discussion. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They are confident in God's sovereignty and his power to save them from the king it's as if they're telling the king yes nebuchadnezzar we know that you are powerful we know that you have the ability to take our lives right here and right now but you do not possess the ultimate authority here our god the one true and living god who is not made by human hands is able to deliver us out of your hand O king that's what they're saying They are confident in God's sovereign ability. Well, brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God to save us is a precious, precious doctrine. We do not serve a God who is powerless to save. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who is mighty to save. And he will do it. So that's the first part of the response. They're confident in God's ability to save them. Well, secondly, even even though they knew that God was powerful enough to save them, they did not presume that God would save them. Look there in verse 17. uh, Or actually, verse 18, right? We know that our God's able to save you, but verse 18. But if not, even if we get thrown in the furnace and we are reduced to puddles of carbon... But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, their faith knows the power of God, but does not presume upon the will of God to save them. Do you see that? Even if they perish in the fire, they would rather die in obedience to the one true and living God than to bow down and worship this false god. 
So they are sure of God's ability, but they're not sure about the path that God is going to put before them to walk. Right? Can you imagine the look on King Nebuchadnezzar's face? (laughs) Here stands three men who are challenging him. Turn us into heaps of ashes. We don't care. It doesn't matter. We will not bow down. One commentator put it this way. They were unsure about God's circumstantial will. They were unsure about God's circumstantial will. In other words, whether or not they would be saved from the fire. But they were sure of God's revealed will. They were sure of God's revealed will. Because probably from the time that they were very young Hebrew boys, it was drilled in their brain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. God had spoken, and that was that. And that was in their heads, and that was in their hearts. So they knew that God was powerful to save them. They didn't know whether or not God would save them. They knew he could, but they didn't know if he would. But they were not going to disobey the word of the Lord. They were going to obey God's revealed will, what he had spoken to them and what he had made plain to them. There's there's a challenge here for you and I this morning. What matters more to us? Deliverance or obedience? It's a good question for us to wrestle with. What matters to us more, deliverance or obedience? Let me ask you this morning, what motivates your faith in Christ? What motivates you being a Christian? What motivates you to be sitting here this morning hearing me talk on and on about these three dudes who died a long time ago? Is it because you think that maybe if you just have enough faith that everything's going to work out just fine for you in the end? It might not. (laughs) It might not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't presume upon God's circumstantial will in that way. But what they did know is that God had spoken. And what was more important to them is that they obey what God had told them to do rather than having the security or a sense of security about what God was going to do with their lives. Right? Jesus called us to be worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? To have true faith in God. And this is true faith. This is, this is the main point. This is what I want. If you don't take anything else away, this is it. Right? This is what true faith looks like. Faith knows the power of God. He is able to save us. He's able to deliver us from your hand, O King. Right? Faith knows the power of God, guards the freedom of God, but if not, right, God may not deliver us from the fire here. So we know the power of God, we guard the freedom of God, and it holds fast to the truth of God's word. We will not serve your gods. That's what true faith is. True faith knows the power of God, guards the freedom of God, and holds fast to the truth of God's word. Do you see that? Do you see that in these few verses of this response? I want to I submit to you this morning that I think this is the real miracle of Daniel chapter 3. Sure, we know the end of the story. We know that God's going to sh- save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He's going to save them from the fire. But the real miracle is, 
is that we have three men here who have changed hearts, who have hearts of faith that would rather die in obedience to their God than to fall down and worship this false idol. That's the real miracle, right? What would, what would happen if this story ended differently? What would happen if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fire and they were burned up and consumed? Would this story be any less miraculous? I don't think so. I think the fact that God had saved these three men before they ever even went into the fire, that's the miracle. That's the miracle. And by the way, if they had been burned up in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been no less saved. May we all have that same kind of faith, and may we all have that same type of courage to obey God's word. Now, it leads us to our final section, the last, the last part of the story, the result. What happens? God saves the one who perseveres to the end. That's what happens. God saves the ones who persevere to the end. So, <clears throat> what actually happens here is a little bit more complicated than what you might think. Their, their deliverance is not quite as cut and dry as what we kind of think, right? Look at what the king does. <clears throat> Again, we see him throw this tissy fit, and he heats the furnace as hot as his temper, right? Seven times over, uh, let's heat this burning, fiery furnace. So now it's not just a burning, fiery furnace. It is a super, ultra burning, fiery furnace, right? Uh, this thing is super heated. And then he, he calls upon these strong men from his army to come and to tie these men together, to bind them up, and to take them and to throw them in the fire. And by the way, there is no confusion here as to what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That fourth man does not show up until they're already in the flames. So in the midst of all of this stuff, whether you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, oh, God's going to save us, let's don't worry about this. No, the king takes them, binds them up. They're watching the king's men throw heaps of wood and coal into the fire to heat it up even more. These strong men come, lead them up the ramp. They're looking down into the pit and they're pushed in. Right? God does not deliver them from the flames. He meets them in the midst of the flames. That's how God delivers his people, right? He, he doesn't spare them from harm. He puts them right in the dead center, the white, hot center of harm's way, and then he meets them there. We see in the text two different times in these verses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's names are all mentioned, right? And, and it's mentioned several times that there are these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Pretend like you didn't know the ending. Three guys go bound into the fire. The very next thing, the king is astonished. And why is he astonished? Because there's four men in the fire. And they're not bound up with ropes anymore. They are unbound and they are walking around. They didn't find some like the one cool spot in the corner of the furnace where they were saved. They didn't actually fall off to the side of the furnace, right? No, the miracle is, is they are walking in and amongst the flames with this fourth man and they're not hurt. And so the king, he's, he, oh, maybe my context fell out. I don't know. You know may, I, maybe I'm not seeing right. So he calls his buddies together and he says, didn't we just throw three guys in there? Yeah, yeah, king, we did. Don't you see four? Am I going crazy? No, no, there's four. And one of them appears to be like the son of the gods. Right? So who is this fourth man? Who is this fourth man? That's a question I've always wondered. And so you know, ultimately, we don't know. 
some, some people say that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus, <clears throat> that the fourth man walking around in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is actually Jesus uh, before he is born of Mary. I, I, I kind of like to think that, but I, I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure, right? I can't prove that to you from this text or from other texts. Uh, some people say, well, it was an angel that was sent from the Lord. Regardless of who it was, uh, regardless of who it was, here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. That fourth person in the flames, it's either God himself or it's God's representative. And he is sent there to be those men's companion and their protector. Right? The real issue is that this is a model of how we are saved in Christ. He does not promise us to save us in a dramatic fashion like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are ultimately saved. He does promise to meet us in the midst of our pain and suffering. He does promise to be with us in the loneliest of times and the most dangerous distresses that we will ever face. He promises us to give us the grace that we need to stand up under the trials and to stay faithful. That's what God promises us. That's how he promises to deliver us. Not to save us from the fire, but to save us in the midst of the fire. So though, there may be those of you here today who aren't Christians, who, who um, never have claimed the name of Christ. First off, I just want to say I am I'm so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, you could not be in a better place uh, to, to wrestle with some of these things. And you might be wondering this morning, what does all of this have to do with you? That's a good question. You see, we have experienced the exact same deliverance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced. Now, none of us have ever been thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. At least I don't think that any of us have been. I haven't been. But we have been miraculously delivered by God. We have experienced the presence of God, right? John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of God. See, Jesus wrapped himself in flesh, and he came down, and he dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live, and he went to the cross and died on that cross in our place for the punishment for our sins so that we may receive forgiveness he too was saved by death by saved from death by God when he was raised from the dead as the first fruits of a new creation. So brother and sister, uh, friend, this morning, if, if you aren't a believer, I, I hope that you can come to understand that you worship somebody. You worship something. But the only one that is truly worthy of your worship is the one true and living God. And he lived, and he died, and he rose again for you. So why would you die in your sin this morning, worshiping a God that cannot save you? Why would you die in your sin, worshiping a God that cannot save you? Repent. Turn to Christ. Receive forgiveness of your sins. In the end, what if we die of that cancer? What if we suffer immeasurably and, and, and inordinately in this life? What if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were consumed in the fire just like the guards who tossed them in? Well, 
For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have repented and put their faith in him, Jesus will raise us again from the dead to live with him. Not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had turned to ashes, if they had been cremated in that fire, in the end, God would raise them from the dead, just like he will you and me one day. Well, I mentioned earlier that I had the opportunity to go to Russia in college, and I spent most of my time in a city called Volgograd. It's right there on the Volga River. Uh, those of you guys who are history buffs uh, probably know that Volgograd is formerly known as Stalingrad. It was Stalingrad during World War II. It's where uh, the, ba- the great battle of Stalingrad on the Eastern Front was fought in World War II. We met this lady who was a believer in one of the churches there in Stalingrad who had grown up and who had lived in that city. And I think at the time she was probably in her 90s. Uh, she had been a Christian for over 70 years. And I remember sitting and listening to her tell her story and to tell us her testimony. And one thing in particular that stood out that she said to me that just amazed me as a college student. She told me of all of these different rulers and all of these different powerful men that had ruled over the Soviet Union and over the Russian time in in the time that she had lived. And, And she told me of all of the glory and all of the pomp and all of the circumstance, all of those different things that these mighty, mighty men of history brought. And then you know what she said? She said, of all of those great and powerful men, I would never bow the knee to worship any of them because not one of them died for me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only one who is worthy of your worship this morning. He's the only one worthy of my worship. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning with thankful hearts. Thankful hearts for the story and for the example that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego set for us. Thankful for the fulfillment that we see of this story in Christ, that he came, that he was maliciously accused by his own, that he stood trial before a mighty king, who mocked him and who spat on him and who hung him on a cross, who was not spared from the fiery furnace, but who endured it for us, but one who persevered to the end and in your power and in your glory rose him from the dead so that we might have newness of life for those of us who trust in him. Father, I pray that we would have that same kind of faith. I pray that we would have a faith that is confident in your power, that does not presume upon your will, and who seeks to obey relentlessly and to trust in your revealed word to us this morning. pray these things in your name. Amen. We come into our time of response. We're going to sing a song called Salvation Belongs to Our God. Right? What a fitting song to, to sing in response to this story. And so maybe this morning your response to this text is, is that you sing with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne. Maybe there's one of you here today who isn't a believer, but who wants to know more about what that looks like, who, who, who is interested in, and who is compelled by worshiping the one true and living God. If that's you this morning, I would love to talk with you this afternoon. I'm, I, I would love, I'm here for you, and I'm going to be standing down front. If you would like to talk, uh, you can come, and I would love to talk with you. But however it is, the Holy Spirit is moving in your hearts to respond. Let's stand together and let's sing and let's respond to God's word this morning.